0: At the time of his death in late 2019, Frank Laumer had amassed a library of roughly 350 Seminole Wars related books. In addition, his compendium contained another 450 books on American presidents and American history related to the Seminole Wars. Some of these had been donated by the late Dr. John Mahan, author of The History of the Second Seminole War. Longtime Seminole Wars scholar Mary Lou Missel performed yeoman's work in collecting and entering the titles on an inventory spreadsheet for the Foundation. That was several years ago. These books form the cornerstone for the Frank Laumer Center for the Study of the Seminole Wars. Since Frank Laumer's passing and through aggressive and also savvy purchases, the Seminole Wars Foundation has doubled its collection to nearly 1,600 books with some ties or references to the Seminole Wars. Some of the books are in-house purchases, but the vast majority are donations from members and friends of the foundation, which provides a professional permanent home for the titles. Today, the Frank Laumer Center features scores of nonfiction, biographical, and historical books on the Seminole, including dozens more with Osceola as a central character. It also carries shelves of titles on the Seminole Wars, on Black Seminoles, the US Army of the time, crackers, pioneers, militia, and even on Florida's environment. Many of these books are original first edition, first printings from the 1830s and 1840s, as well as subsequent revisions and reprints. This library also carries many adventure novels featuring boys or girls encountering and working with the Seminoles, as well as adult stories with a war setting that includes mystery and passion as key components. There are even several manuscripts of poetry with a Seminole Wars theme. In a 2019 interview with the Florida Historical Society, Frank Laumer himself said he wanted his collection of research files and books to be available for scholars to peruse. This is all well and good. The challenge, however, becomes cataloging, labeling, and sorting the collection into a recognizable and standardized order so that titles can be found and reviewed easily on the shelves. This is where three generations of librarians come in. Eileen Goodson and her adult daughter, Erin Lewis, have experience in Sumter County as librarians, media specialists, and school teachers. Erin's daughter, Jaylee, a high school student, mature and insightful beyond her years, brought online savvy and tenacity to the endeavor. Each brought special skills to this project, and together they've created and refined a most valuable search tool, for accessing this collection, just as Frank Laumer desired. In this episode, Eileen, Erin, and Jaylee describe their organizing process and reveal, because of the breadth and depth of this collection, what they learned about the Seminole Wars. They explain how they use Library Thing, a social media app for cataloging. It permits the foundation to store and share its extensive book catalog for public inspection and review before anyone makes an appointment to visit the center in Bushnell to see the physical books themselves. Eileen Goodson, Erin Lewis, Jaylee Lewis, welcome to the Seminole Wars.
1: Well, thank you so much for having here. us. Yeah, we appreciate it.
0: Ladies, what did you know about the Seminole Wars before you started on this project? Erin?
2: familiar with the Seminole Wars due to work I had done for my master's degree. For my master's thesis, I actually wrote about the Black Seminoles of Florida and the pivotal
1: role that they played in the Seminole Wars.
0: Eileen?
1: I knew a little bit about it just from having been a Florida resident and, you know, Dade Battlefield being close by and just part of our local and Florida history, but didn't have any great in-depth
3: knowledge. Julie, I didn't know much about it to begin with, but I just did know that it was more of a local thing, but I didn't realize how much it impacted Florida history and American.
0: How did this change when you started working on the project?
3: Yeah, so I definitely learned a lot more about how a lot of people have written about this and they have accounts about it. So it impacted a lot more than I thought it did. Let me talk about that
1: a little bit. I was amazed at how deep the collection was. It's all encompassing. It hits fiction, nonfiction, social sciences. Everything from military to personal accounts to journals. It's just amazing how much there has been recorded and how much you have there in the collection that reflects all of that. It's an impressive amount of information. My thought was, and I think that's probably I've got more of an insight on this because I was the one that dealt more with the titles and things and the Dewey numbers and the categories they fit into, is that we've still got a lot of current authors that are still doing research. And of course, that's the value of this library. But they're still writing about and increasing our knowledge about the Seminole Wars and the history of the Seminole people and all of the things that they touched. As Daley was mentioning earlier, it it connects to a lot of our American history. It's not just a local history. Tendrils are running right up to our present day and continues to change and be part of our current history.
0: What stands out for you and why?
1: Jaylee and I had talked about this as we worked on it. Some of those titles I actually remember seeing as a kid, and I had some of them in the library in the middle school when I was a media specialist there. Yeah. And so that kind of touches on the adventure and especially for, I think that that teenage kind of, and young teenage soul there, there's a lot of mystery and allure about the idea of being a Seminole and Indian, especially the wars. That was really kind of a neat thing about seeing those parts of your collection because it connected to my history as well.
0: What was your concern for this project?
1: For me, it was (laughs) making sure that we got the books labeled correctly. When it's all said and done, that was really our job, is to make sure that we had them cataloged correctly, labeled correctly. That sounds pretty simple, but to get it right is a pretty heavy responsibility. And also, it's a big project. It's not just a handful of books, it's a really big project and if you keep on finding new books and adding them
0: (laughs) and the project continues to grow. Erin, it was an email invitation for this project. Tell us about that.
2: My first awareness of the project obviously came from the email sent by Karen Cloud and I thought oh how fun and exciting and then I saw the shelves and how many books and it was still exciting but I did realize the scope of what we were getting ourselves into I was just excited to see how we could maybe work together to make the books maybe a little bit more accessible for people who may want to do
3: research. Lee? It was also interesting because I saw all the books and I was like, oh, it might be fun to just help out a little bit, but it definitely became a lot more. And it's still fun to get these books cataloged and make sure everything's where it's supposed to be, but it's definitely, it's a lot.
0: Eileen, how is this different from your previous experience with cataloging?
1: I've been a media specialist. I trained as a media specialist, and, but it was much different when you have books that come to you that are already pre-catalogued and you have a very, this collection that we're working on here is a very specific focus. Now, it's much broader than I would have realized when you first look at the title of it. Of course, it hits a lot of things that I did not expect, but in my training and in my previous experience, it was for a specific age of students and I managed that collection and mostly it was more about the managing and the day-to-day operation of check-in, check-out, and the cataloging mostly was done by a commercial company. I only did individual books as needed for specialty titles, not nearly as much of the cataloging and stuff as we're doing now.
0: Erin, did you have any experience with this type of project?
1: No, I didn't have any experience with cataloging books.
2: So this was, I believe I might have been a library helper in middle school, but once again, that was more just putting books back on the shelves once they were already labeled but I didn't have any experience with actually categorizing the book and labeling them.
0: Jaylee, you did the bulk of the work on the spreadsheet that we have. Tell us about that part of the project.
3: Yeah, I just had to find all of the books that were in the spreadsheet and we hadn't seen the books in person as much yet. So just getting the ones that are already in the spreadsheet labeled and getting the information that we needed on them, and then actually going to the library and seeing what was in the spreadsheet or what maybe we had mislabeled or needed to just go back on. And then also using library thing to where it could actually be used for cataloging and then just being able to add more books to it. Some wonderful person prior to us
1: had done a tremendous amount of work getting the books listed in the spreadsheet, but not all of the cataloging information was there. So that was our step. And then of course, adding additional books as we came across them that were on the shelves, but not in the spreadsheet. And then from there, the spreadsheet has become the basis for printing the labels. And it also corresponds to the library thing, which you're working on for the checkout system.
0: There are different cataloging standards. Talk about those, please.
1: The ISBN is International Standard Book Number, and it's just that. Come up with a book number that applies across universally. Whereas Library of Congress is an American system for our American Library of Congress. The Dewey Decimal System is also an American system. Library of Congress is an assigned number. It's a cataloging system, just like Dewey Decimal, but it's usually used more in the bigger libraries. It would be wonderful if uh, <laughs> to use that if we had the time and the resources to use that system, but I was not familiar with it and I do not have the resources to get into it. It's quite expensive to get into their systems and to use their cataloging system if you have to buy it or you have to buy their resources to learn it. Whereas the Dewey, that's more universally used across the United States in most libraries and I had experience with this and access to that information. So that's why we went with the Dewey Decimal System, which has been around for a long, long time. And Library of Congress, like I say, was just those numbers were not as available and not as easy to ensure that we were using the right numbers if we did not have access to an existing number for a book that was already in the spreadsheet. So you're saying how do you come up with a Dewey Decimal number based on if you don't have any other numbers?
0: Okay, so all the books in the Seminole Wars Foundation Library will have a Dewey Decimal number. What is that and how is it used?
1: It decimal number it does not rely on any of those other numbers. You look at the content of the book, which talks about you know, what kind of a focus the book has, what area of the country it comes from and especially with the historical things it's more about the area of the country the region on down to the state and then the specific such as the seminoles the tribe and whatever it was it about their costumes their dress their military maneuvers things like that so it gets it chips further and further down where you have more and more numbers listed which based on the content of the book is how you determine the dewey it doesn't have to be based on any of the other numbers that are out there they all should align in some form. If they're all using, it really should all be about the content, depending on what system you're using though, The Dewey number just allows local libraries to show them in a way that makes sense within that library. So as you're researching and trying to find a book, you'll know what section of the library to go to. And then from there, who the author is those kinds of things. It helps you find the book in the library. This has been around for a long time. Melville Dewey, early 1800s, developed this as libraries beginning to become an expectation. We've got our first public libraries. This was the first system that was developed for cataloging books and figuring out what they were about and how they should be shelved. Fiction is pretty basic. You either use an F for fiction or an FIC for fiction. In our catalog, we went with an F. And then you use the author's last name and the, the date of publication. So you're going to go to the F section, which is the fiction section, and look by the author's last name.
0: And it's important to note that all the fiction is in one section. It's not interspersed throughout the rest of the Dewey Decimal System.
1: That's what we had arrived at. We might further break down adult fiction from young adult fiction or from juvenile fiction, but I think they should all be shelved together.
0: Other than for the fiction, Dewey uses a series of number from 001 to 999.
1: Yes, and so you've got broad categories of the zeros, the 100s, the 200s, and so on. History mostly being in the 900s and social sciences being in the 300s, but then also manuals and almanacs and some of those kinds of things in the encyclopedias and the zeros or the ones. that gets into the 900s being history and geography and then the 970s a lot of it is the nine sevens which gets into seminoles and then you get into seminole wars or seminole customs or things like that now if you got into a biography about a particular leader or whatever that might be the 300s or the 700s depending on the focus if there was stuff on development of technology of their culture, like how they went from this process in hunting to that process, that would be in the sciences. So it really, really is a focus of the topic of the book. But most of that collection is heavily 900 and heavily 970.
0: We well, talked about the technical details of the Dewey Decimal System, but what will researchers get? Why is this a good way of organizing the book so that researchers and scholars will have the easiest access to them?
1: Well, if we do it right, (laughs) and we do it well, then they should be able to research with this cataloging system that we're going to use, put in a word, search it, and it should pull up titles that are corresponding. And then they should be able to go to that section of the shelves. And because there are so many with the same general number, then they're going to have to go to the author's last name, and they'll have to be shelved alphabetically. Like say you had a 975.004, which there's a Quite a few of those and you had 14 books with 975.004 but you had six different authors so then you're going to go the second way of shelving the next level would be alphabetical by the first letter of the author's last name from there that's how they should be shelved so then they come into the library and they'll go to that section of the shelves. they find it and hopefully like i say if it's been return to the shelf correctly and we've put them in order correctly to start with and they should buy the number and then the author's first letter the author's last name go to the book.
0: Erin?
2: I think another benefit of this system is that a lot of times you think you're looking for a certain book and then you go to the shelf and then you see all the other books on the shelf that you weren't even aware of and then you start getting interested and you go oh look at this one and oh look at this one. So I think that's another benefit of having it cataloged this way, is that because it's by topic, once you get there, you can browse based on what you're seeing on the shelf. It's hugely important because, well, sometimes you don't know what you need to know until you see it there. And so it just piques your interest even more once you see what books are available. Sometimes you don't even know a topic's been written on until you see it on the shelf.
1: I think what Aaron said is true. That's a really strong point about, especially for research. Now, fiction is different because. The little F on there doesn't tell you much of anything except for the fiction book. But when you get into a category, when you're doing it by specific topic and you've narrowed it down that deeply, you're in the area that you're already researching and so that you might see topics and titles that you wouldn't have expected.
0: How did your plan of operation to tackle this project change or need to be adapted once you got working on the actual book titles?
1: I think my plan didn't change As far as how I knew the books, since we were using the Dewey Decimal System, I had a pretty good understanding of how I wanted them to be, which was fiction together, nonfiction together, put them on the shelf correctly and in order. What threw me off was the sheer volume of the collection and realizing that There is just physical space. There just wasn't enough, in order to clear the shelves off, to reshelve everything, you got to make a mess before you can straighten up. That was going to take some doing, but if you pulled out extra shelving for us and some space, we've gotten a start on it. But I do think that the fiction books should be together. You've got quite a few of the graphic novels and comic books. I think those should be together. Your videos should be together. Those kinds of things that are of a category or a group should be together.
0: We've talked about the spreadsheet. We've talked about the Dewey Decimal cataloging system we're using, and then we referenced something called Library Thing. Jaylee, tell us about Library Thing and what it does for this project.
3: Yeah, so Library Thing is a researching and cataloging system, so you can use it to find existing books and see what information they have in there. And you can also use it to input your own books and use it as a library cataloging system for just storing your books or actually being able to check books in and out. This is available online. Since it is online, people can just go ahead and look it up or they can have it open on a computer in the library or so anybody can see what books are in the library and know what's there before they can actually see.
1: Well, actually I was just kind of casting about trying to find some resources because if you buy the Dewey Decimal cataloging system it's quite expensive but i had spoken with you about that earlier and you said well okay we'll look into it but then i just started researching lots and lots online trying to find ways to do this without the great expense and library thing kept popping up and then as i used it more and more and just looked at it it also is a bit of a blog for um people that have libraries such as ours a small library or a or a church library, or even school libraries. So you can give comments on books, you can get some advice, you can, it's just kind of a a support system almost. But also it allows you to create your own cataloging system. That's why that came about when I realized that I could set up my own library and add books to it. I thought, well, that's perfect. So I set it up in my name um, with the password, of course, that would be usable by anybody. And then as we did research, every time we would research a book, we would add it to library things, um, and w- which had the double benefit of making it accessible to the public eventually.
3: Taking, obviously, you just look up the book and then try to figure out which, because there will be a lot of results that pop up on library things. So finding the book that matches the one that you have, which can also be difficult without having the book physically in your hand. But once you do that, you also have to, sometimes you come across books that don't have the information that we need. So you have to go back and actually just research on the internet to try to find them, or that's when you have to assign a decimal number to that book. That's why it is good. It was nice to have most of the publication dates on the spreadsheet. So you do have to match that up with what is in library things. So sometimes you have to do a little bit more digging just to see Oh, which version is this, or do I have the right one? And then if you can't find a book, then sometimes you just have to save it for later and then go in and manually add it later. But you also, like I said, that's when you have to assign a Dewey Decimal number, depending on what the book is about.
1: Well, honestly, I think Patrick, you've probably done that kind of work as much or more than we have. It sounds like you have done a tremendous amount of work updating library thing entries with the summaries and things. That'll make the research more meaningful for people trying to find the books that they want from your library. I think it's essential for someone to be able to have some idea of what the book's about, regardless of the Dewey number and regardless of the title. If you don't have some idea of what the book is about, you might be wasting your time. So... Even a basic description helps a person trying to decide if that's the book they need and then somebody in library thing will take your description and use that for their book. So it's kind of like a Wikipedia of library cataloging. It lets you edit and add your own information. It's user built. They can choose to just use the existing book that is there, whether it be our copy or somebody else's, or they can take that and edit it for a different publication date or add a summary or add a different cover because we learned that there are many different covers for sometimes the very same book in the collection that we're working on now with you.
0: A corollary to Library Thing is Tiny Cat. What's Tiny Cat?
1: Yeah, Tiny Cat. There's a link on there within Library Thing homepage. There's an advertisement for, and it's called Tiny Cat. So it is a monthly subscription and they maintain your collection online. Of course, you've got to keep it updated and all that. They don't do the actual work. They just make it accessible, I think, to the public.
2: So yes, the way library thing works, it's more inward facing. It's for the person maintaining the collection. It's more of a tool, but then tiny cat is more of the public facing side whereby you can turn the the digital catalog into a searchable and catalog where you can actually use checkouts as well. And I believe for a collection from one to 5,000 books is $6 a month if I recall correctly, the pricing. TinyCat is for the end user that are searching the collection. And that's also a system if you wanted to actually check books out, set due dates, things like that. It also has that
0: feature. How does LibraryThing handle duplicates or second or third copies of titles?
1: For every book that has any sort of discrepancy in the title, the publication date, anything like that, it would be a separate entry. But if you had multiple copies of the same title, there's indicator that says two copies or four copies.
0: What's the benefit from having original titles and subsequent reprints or new editions?
2: I think being able to see both original titles as well as reprints of the same titles from later time periods allows researchers to see how perspectives on that topic may have changed over time. There might be a foreword or an epilogue in the reprints that speaks specifically to how our understanding and the historiography, how it's changed about this topic over time, right? The facts that we knew hundred years ago, we might've made new discoveries or maybe there are terms that we used hundred years ago that are now fallen out of favor or things like that. So I think the study of looking how our perspectives on the topic itself has changed is interesting. And I think having original copies allows us to be able to study that. So that's an important part of why originals are beneficial to
1: us.
0: What special considerations must one use for fragile books?
1: Books are valuable resources and of course we want to take care of them. All of the folks that donated their books and money toward the purchase for books for this library would like for us to take good care of them. So if a book is older and frail, you don't want to stick sticky things on it that could damage the outside of the book. So. Those books, you want to probably put in some sort of a slip cover or some sort of a binding that will hold them together, protect the exterior, but will still allow you to put a label on it. Whereas a newer book, there's no issue. Generally, books that are of this caliber are intended to be used repeated times. They're not single-use books. They're intended to be used for research, so they've got a heavier binding on them. So you can put a label on it without any fear of damaging the book. Something that doesn't have a hard cover, such as a pamphlet, or even the graphic novel, possibly, might be best kept in a sleeve. And then in a hard case, such as a magazine rack, which is hard-sided, which allows you to keep multiple copies kind of of the same topic together, but gives them support and still allows you to label without damaging the material itself. Figuring out where exactly to house those kinds of things in the collection is going to be based on your space and just how many of them that you have. Could you take those and house them within that section of books that they actually belong or do all of them need to be in a separate category? That's some of the things that just have to be decided when we get closer to actually getting the books arranged on the shelf. But you could put all of the graphic novels about Seminoles in one case and all of the pamphlets that are war manuals in another case because there were quite a few that were manuals that did not have the hardcovers. Those were the ones that tended to be not books that were manuals or accounts or handbooks of some sort. What you'd have to do is probably label the front of the case for the type of materials that are included within. And then if you put that material in a plastic slip cover then you'd have to put the label on probably the top right corner of the cover. So as the person pulled it out, they could easily see that without having to pull every one of them out to see the back of it. With really old books, if they're just getting frail, I think probably a slip cover, and then you put the label on the outside of the slip cover, that's fine. If it's got a really frail book, I think you put it in a slip cover and you probably keep it separate and you don't put it in circulation. You just put a note somewhere saying for observation only and let people know that it's available to look at. But if it's terribly frail, you really don't want people handling it. You would probably have to be with them and let them just look at it. They do make covers for books that are in varying sizes, that allows you to to slip the outside cover into the front and the back of this little case, and it creates a little perfectly sized case around the book so that it can still be open and closed, and yet it protects the outside of the book. And they're generally a thin plastic, not a super heavy plastic. They're not so tight that you can't take it off, but they're not so loose. They want to stay put, but they're not going to damage the book.
3: Yeah, I agree. I think it's
2: interesting to see how things change over time and their perspectives and the
3: way they set the books up. And also just as being really young, it's cool to see all of these old books and just knowing that we can still have access to all of this information that is so old and it it still is applicable to life today.
0: How central would you say that this book collection is to the overall value of the Frank Laumer Center for Seminole War Studies?
2: The book collection is definitely the cornerstone of the Laumer Center. The other items are definitely the icing on the cake, the research papers, the posters, the map. They really provide context for the historical topics that are covered in the collection. So, the collection is your face and then everything else just adds more context and information.
0: Why does that matter?
2: I think that's important because reading about, let's say, the events that happened at Dave's Battlefield is one thing, but to hold the rifle, to feel it, to feel the weight, to understand the difficulty in loading, I think that just adds a whole new perspective that you wouldn't get from a book alone. Seeing the picture, seeing the topography of the area where the battle was fought, once again, it just makes it more real. It makes it more immersive for the person who is trying to understand it.
0: How user-friendly is the available space inside the center?
1: I've spent a lot of time in that space and we felt like it's an enticing space. It's a comfortable space. You've got work areas and you've got good lighting and you've got That cool new logo that's on the floor, that is really neat. It's just an inviting space, and it makes you want to sit down and get a book and check it out and and read about it and learn about it. It, You've done a good job with making it pleasant and appealing and enticing.
0: And I do want to stress to our listeners that the books inside this collection are somehow related to the Seminole Wars. It's not a general topic library.
1: Well, that's what's in there. So if you're going to pick up a book in there, it's going to be something about Seminole or Seminole Wars, isn't it? (laughs) I think you've done it. I think you've hit the nail on the head that definitely speaks to that whole culture, that whole section of history, made it very real and meaningful and an enticing place to be.
0: In working on this project, what's your biggest revelation you've had?
1: I was amazed at how early they started making accounts of the different incidents, the volume of reports, the number of books that have been written on this specific to the Seminole Wars. I was just kind of blown away with the volume, the longitude and the latitude of how much there was about the Seminole and the Seminole Wars and how far the effect of that spread. I really did not realize that.
3: Yeah,
2: I would have to agree. I was a little more aware, having done my research for my papers. I don't think I was probably as surprised.
3: For me, it was interesting to see also how many people have actually written about this and how many personal accounts there were about it, not just what was going on historically, but what was going on in people's lives. So primary documents of people's personal accounts and how they were feeling during those times.
1: Yeah, it's crazy.
3: (laughs) There's a lot. And from way back to current from people that are just
1: casual about it to first-hand accounts there's just a massive massive amount of books on Seminole Seminole Wars particularly I, I mean Seminoles yes I can understand that but Seminole Wars just amazing
0: how does what the collection offers differ from what is being offered in schools as history of the Seminole Wars
3: So we did learn mostly in elementary school was when we did more of like the Florida history. So you touch on just what's happened locally and you learn about these things, but you don't really get super in-depth of the people and what they did. You just really learn about generalizations. And I certainly don't think that we teach how great of an effect or far-reaching
1: the Seminole Wars were in the history of Florida and America. I certainly didn't realize that until we started working on this.
0: And what was your greatest disappointment with this project?
1: That has been that we were not able to complete it as quickly as we had hoped. We had high hopes of of cranking through it, but just the sheer volume of work and the volume of titles, it just takes a lot of man hours and you want to do it right.
0: What are some of the curiosity books that you found in the collection?
3: It's been interesting to see Some books that I've noticed from when my mom wrote her paper or some books that my grandma recognized from when she was a kid. And it's cool to see all of these books and then also newer ones. Or sometimes you see the cover art or the title and you're like, huh, I wonder what that's about. And it's definitely intriguing. Like, oh, this would be a cool book to check out and just learn what it's all about.
1: We well, discussed this quite a few times, but people will throw the word Seminole into a title and it may have nothing to do with actual Seminoles. And so it was interesting to see how many books, well, not a terrible knot, but, uh, you know, every now and then we come across one that had nothing to do with, with anything to do with Seminoles, but yet it had Seminole in the title. That was interesting. And also the romantic portrayal that people make of Indian life when Honestly, they were not done very well by our people, so that's always interesting to see it, it romanticized when it wasn't.
2: Well, they talk about that every time you go to St. Augustine, so I was aware of that one already. They love to tell the story of Osceola's head. Apparently, it's painted on the side of the Castillo de San
1: Marcos. Yeah, it's just funny that I think that they did it for that very reason. the allure of the idea of the Seminoles and that romantic idea of Indian and
3: Indian life
0: overall. What personal and professional takeaways do you have from this project?
3: Especially since I didn't have very much background doing this. So it was neat being able to work with all of these books and just see all of them and then also cataloging them because just knowing how to put them into the system and then put them into circulation can help with a lot of things and help just being able to manage libraries. Yeah, it is nice to have all of this background knowledge. It makes doing research a lot easier. I can
1: tell you that I had internal and external panic because when Erin was so excited and she said, Mom, let's work on this. This looks like a great project connected to our local community. It'll be a great research. I wish this would be in a place when I was doing my research. And I'm like, do you have any idea how much work that's going to (laughs) be? She said, yeah, but we can tackle it together. And then I went and looked at the collection I thought, Oh my goodness gracious. And so my professional and personal takeaway is what I expected. If you're going to do them well, things always take longer than you expect, always. And to do it right, you just kind of have to put in the time.
2: For me, I would have liked to have had access to something like this. Let's see, two and a half years ago when I was finishing my master's, and I actually wrote several papers on the Seminoles here and there in different courses, but like I said, my master's thesis was on the Black Seminoles, and so I really had to stretch far and wide to find sources on that, and the collection like this would have been very helpful to me it's such a shame to me that we have such a gem right here in sumter county of dade's battlefield and some people go to the reenactment every so often but for the most part most people don't even know what we have right here in our own backyards and we have palik just down the road in center hill and all of these battle of wahoo swamp just a few miles away from dade's battlefield and all these neat historical sites that most people have no idea about and so
1: Anything that we can do to promote that is beneficial. It deserves the time, and it's going to take the time to get it right. I know you have spent a lot of time working on your portion of it. We've certainly tried to do our best to do a good job with it and just hope that it ends up being what we all envision it to be, which is a true research library to promote the Seminole War continuing knowledge for people that are interested in it and and further people's interest in it. It is a great resource, but it is self-made. It's much like Wikipedia. I mean, you approve it as you go, and the more time you put into it, the more information you add, the more useful it is. But it does take adding those details in to make it more meaningful. But then it becomes a pretty useful resource.
0: Very good. Eileen Goodson, Erin Lewis, Jaylee Lewis. Thank you all for joining us for the Seminole Wars. And thanks most of all for making our library at the Seminole Wars Foundation intelligible to the public.
1: Well, we have enjoyed being here. We really appreciate the time and effort you have put into developing this wonderful resource, and we look to continue working with you on it. Thank you. Thanks,
2: Patrick.
0: If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. Visit our website at www.seminalwars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminal Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation 2022. All rights reserved. Front bumper music The Devil's Garden. Roast 'em. Provided by kind permission of Rudy Onman. Back bumper music Second Seminole Win by Jed Merum and Ricky Pittman. Courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.